0: Hello, good evening and welcome. I'm John Drummond and I'm your host for the next 60 exciting minutes. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. UNICEF said today that for the very first time in their 76 year history, they will be supplying food to kids in the UK. Think about that, think about that. How can anyone call that a success? Maybe we have truly descended to one of the lower levels of being a banana republic, because that's what happens in banana republics. They don't have enough food, or they don't have the will to feed their own kids. Now, I would say to you that the first responsibility of any state is to protect its citizens, and in particular, those citizens who are most vulnerable. Clearly, that's not a priority for the UK. Oh, and by the way, incidental of nothing at all, there are 145 billionaires In this country. Thanks for joining us this evening. We have yet another great guest, and I'm really excited that he's here with us tonight. Tonight, the TNT show welcomes Ken McDonald. Now, Ken was until recently a very well-known and well-respected commentator on BBC Scotland. In fact, few are in a better position to talk about the BBC and its inner workings than Ken. You know the TNT stands for The Nation Talks, and tonight the Nation Talks to Ken McDonald. Now, Ken, how are you coping with the pandemic?
1: I would have to say I'm very fortunate because although I do have one of those, what they call darkly the underlying health condition, I'm a type two diabetic because I spent much of my earlier life eating my own weight and crisps and chocolate. But what I have now is, is, is a situation where you are more at risk if you catch COVID-19. Now, I am actually very well under control. It's very well managed and all that sort of thing. But what it meant was that when COVID first hit, I got packed off home which is warm, it has electricity, it has broadband, there are supplies of food, all that sort of thing. I'm fortunate. I really am fortunate. And and plus, the place is too big for us now. Our daughter's left home. So we're doing fine. My wife works from home in one room. I was working from home in this room. Now I'm not working at all because I took a packet from from the BBC and retired. It was a nice transition period, if you set aside the fact that I was reporting daily on uh, death and horror and and a a ghastly virus, which is still nowhere near beaten.
0: Do you believe in the old adage that, uh, I think it was Benjamin Franklin said, that news is what somebody somewhere doesn't want to see in print? Anything else is advertising.
1: Yes, ab- absolutely. <laughs> yes, and there's a, a terrible tendency. Well, there the was a statistic came out just a few years back, actually, that the press officers, public relations officers, now outnumber journalists in Scotland. That, that one might contend is it's, it's quite worrying, actually, isn't it? Because you need people to sift through the barrage of stuff that comes out. For people who aren't, you know, they, they are not shills. They are not. They are not liars, but they are paid to. Put a positive spin on the people that they they are employed by, and and you need people to kind of hold. I think it was uh, Christopher Boris who said, "Hold up a net in the strong breeze." So somebody has to do that, and somebody has to sift through all that nonsense, and uh, well, get get the wheat out of the chaff.
0: Yeah, yeah. To me, it was inevitable because when I looked at the the growth of communications, and I looked at the a tremendous inferiority complex that lots of senior people in business have. That's why they reach for public relations experts in the last part. I mean, And on a few occasions when I've been able to convince one or two of those senior people to actually do their own stuff, come on television, talk to people, say it direct. Because frankly, nobody wants to talk necessarily to somebody who looks after pressure agents. What they want to do is talk to the top honcho. They want to talk to the guy who makes the decisions or the woman who makes the decisions. That's where the news is. You get it straight from the horse's mouth. (laughs)
1: <laughs> exactly there was actually one bunch of press officers let's put it a leading Scottish financial institution who actually made it their job not to put the chief executive on air because he was so terrible on camera it would have actually crashed the share price so that there is that but there's a great definition of what news is there's a guy called Mark Byford who rose at one point to the dizzying height of acting director general of the BBC and Mark Byford used to say well what is news what is news news is new information first that's all it is yeah. everything else is just fluff and opinion and argument and, and so these are all important things apart from the fluff but the new information first is actually what you need there's, there's a great guy called alan fisher he works for uh, reuters he used to work in grampian television alan when he was in the newsroom in grampian television would sit there at the typewriter that's how long ago it is writing the introduction that the newsreader would would, would read. And in, in those days, um, it was all pre-recorded. It was all, the, the news report was all cut, it was all filed, it was fine. All the sound bites were there. It was just the bit that the newsreader would read that would sell it to the audience to make them pay attention to this. And he used to rock back and forward and go, hey mom, guess what? Hey mom, guess what? And that is you come in the kitchen door and You go, hey mom, guess what? Your know, two <laughs> teachers are the fight in the playground. Whatever it was, that's that's the point. That's your new information first. And it yeah. did something else that, that Mark Byford used to say. He used to dash from when he worked in the BBC in Leeds, versus to dash from edit suite to edit suite, going impact, beauty. Um, and, and that's what he wanted in a television film. Yeah. There, there is there is a, a danger, though, as, as I think uh, many people have noticed, where there is there is a there, is, there should be a boundary between the news and show business. And yeah. sometimes that gets blurred a wee bit, particularly in television.
0: Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, I find a lot of people are very critical of broadcasting nowadays because they feel that it, it's descended to... Tabloid esque stuff. If it bleeds, it leads. So it, it doesn't matter if there's this bunch of facts and this bunch of emotion. The focus is on the emotion and not the facts. Uh, and after a while, that becomes, it erodes trust because people need facts in a functioning democracy. Of course, they need a bit of emotion. Yes. Uh, but if that balance is wrong, and there's this amount of emotion and that amount of facts, then everyone is, there's a disservice there, it seems to me. Would you agree?
1: Yes, you, you need to be able to connect the news, the facts, with, with the reason why they are relevant to everybody's lives. Now, yeah. sometimes that's, that can be done. For example, I, I could find no way of explaining why the Higgs boson mattered, other than <laughs> why... It was hugely important. It was hugely important to to physics, to our understanding of the very nature of stuff. It it really is as basic as that. Um, Will it have any spin-offs? Will it make a new type of non-stick frying pan? No, it won't. It it definitely won't. Maybe one day the Higgs boson will be responsible for hover cars or anti-gravity belts. That's possibly 500 years down the line. So that that was one exception. But... uh, mostly, you have to explain to people why that matters. And I think there's there's been a particular problem in the way that people like me have, have, have covered politics, which is politics tends to be treated as a spectator sport. Yeah, it's, not, it's something you watch. It's something where somebody will come on and comment about the tactics. Oh, he moved three inches to the left here. And nobody actually talks about the goals. Nobody actually yeah. explains that politics shouldn't be a, a spectator sport. You should be taking part in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, let's come back to that in a second. Tell us a little bit about uh, where you where you were born, where you grew up, Ken. What your influences were, family, school, etc.
1: I was born in uh, Paisley, Glenburn and Paisley council scheme, not not in the state, a scheme. I'm, I'm very, I'm very conscious of the fact that we let so some inappropriate terms uh, creep across the border at us. Definitely, yeah. the, the but big scheme. It was great. We lived on the edge of the countryside. Uh, Mum and dad, I've got a sister who's three years younger than me. Um, the, 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 we all, I think, influenced each other. My, my father had a terrific sense of humour. My mother, it turns out, has got a terrific sense of humour as well. Um, and and uh, I think very principled people. And I was made to feel also quite proud to be Scottish. They weren't Scottish nationalists. They didn't believe in independence then. Uh, and we're talking about back in the 1960s. But the, the, it, it was a type of... Um, a type of pride in Scotland. And you've got to bear in mind, back in the 1960s, um, the Queen came to Bannockburn to unveil a big statue of Robert the Bruce. Uh, Scotland Scotland did not feel as if it was becoming detached from the rest of the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom felt confident. It was that kind of nationalism, but with a small end, a a pride in Scotland, in Scottish achievements. And also, let's face it, a feeling that perhaps, you know, on occasion, perhaps Scotland was being shortchanged a wee bit or ignored. Yes, but the education as well. I, I, I went to state uh, primary school, Langcraig's Primary um, School. Colours: grey, gold, and blue. Um, it's it's it was great fun. It really was um, uh, some formative experiences there. Things like. Being taken to Bannockburn, funnily enough, by Miss Peacock in primary five. We all win. It wasn't just the two of us, we weren't a couple or anything. <laughs> um, we, we, uh, and, and that was, that was a, a really good basis. And then I was looking at the, the school photo a few years ago of, of my class, um, and there were 38 of us in it. Now, that shows you there weren't maximum class sizes in those. Yeah. Only three of us got to go. Um, on to Paisley Grammar, because in those days, Renfrewshire schools in the late 60s were actually still selective. And if you're in the like in, in in the top three or four in a class, you might go onto Paisley Grammar. There was also the John Nielsen yeah. as well. And then everybody else went to the junior secondary. And that was that's a terrible age at which to tell people, I'm terribly sorry, but um life's race has already been run and I'm afraid there aren't any reprochage. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, so you were one of the lucky few then. So you graduated, you went on, and
1: yes, it, it was it was very interesting. Um, I would have to say, I I went to Paisley Grammar. It was interesting. She did meet people from all sorts of different backgrounds. You got to learn about uh, class and and that sort of thing, and privilege and wealth and, yeah. and things like that. I, I suppose a sociologist would call me an emergent working class because. I started off in in, in the council house, and then at about the time I went on to secondary school, my parents bought uh, their own house, uh, which was uh, a huge milestone. Uh, and and I think they spent just a shade over six thousand pounds on it. Oh, really? Goodness me, yeah, it was just <laughs> it's, it's it's astonishing, isn't it? When when you think of it, you know, if you could go back in time with the money you have now, what could you buy? But uh, this is the uh, this was this was how it worked. Uh, so and and. Uh, Then I went on to, well, by the end of secondary school, I was completely scorned with every subject that I'd done. I thought, I'm not going to do any of these things. What will I do? So I decided to do law. um, And I got a law degree at Glasgow University because that was the other thing at Paisley Grammar. You weren't asked, where are you going? Uh, Which university are you going to afterwards? You were asked, um, what? what subject are you doing when you go to Glasgow University? I was going to get a conveyor belt that that fed you up there. So I went to law. By the end of the three years, I was completely scummed with that as well. So I thought, I've always fancied journalism. You know, I've got this, you know, it's it's the old thing, the old working class thing. Um, You've got your degree to fall back on son. And I had my degree to fall back on. I thought, well, I've always quite fancied journalism. Let's give it a shot and see how it turns out. So I, I with, with the assistance of, of a lady friend who could type, um, I wrote to all 117 newspapers in Scotland and said, "Give us a job. And uh, about 35% of them wrote back and said, well, we'll, we'll see, we'll um, keep your name on file. Uh, only one of them ever got back to me. 65% yeah. of them ignored me completely, but there was one paper that had a vacancy that they were desperate to fill. And because I mentioned I, I liked cycling, they thought, this guy can be our sports reporter as well as being a general news reporter. So off, off, off I went, and that's where I went into um, journalism. I'm still waiting to see how it turns out. And as you can see, I've been starving ever since. How did you find yourself at the BBC? That was because I, I had... I, this is strange. I never made the connection. I really liked listening to the radio. And I, I, not yeah. just normal radio programs like domestic radio but listening to you've got to bear in mind this was the cold war so you Ooh. could hear radio moscow and radio berlin yeah. international and, and that yeah. sort of you could tune into all these exotic radio stations and it was really yeah. interesting and i had that as a kind of hobby a kind of interest i never thought i'm a journalist maybe i could do some broadcasting as well but I happily um, somebody else a friend of my mother's saw this advert uh, for, for a new radio station that, that was opening up and she passed it on so why don't you try that and that was West Sound and Air so that was very yeah. exciting to be at the, the launch of, of a radio station uh, and then I moved to um, another commercial station which was Radio T in Dundee I didn't last long there because a job came up at, at the BBC and uh, I, I kind of w- went there in a very junior role um, and then, in fact, I, I don't know if you remember the late, great Ali Abassi but for a while mm. I was Ali Abassi I, I did the travel news, it was, it was great fun and gradually you just worked your way up, it gave me time to develop it gave me time to think and hone such skills as as I have, and I, b- before I knew it, I'd been there for decades, and I, I became kind of institutionalized, like a long stay right. psychiatric patient. It was it was it was <laughs> it, it was very odd, but it it was. I'm a great believer in public broadcasting, and and um, I know people have got reservations about the BBC and the way it handles Scotland. I, I certainly have, but the, nevertheless, um, I, I believe in publicly funded. Public Service Broadcasting for Scotland, and it was the only show in town.
0: Good, good. Oh, by the way, uh, someone called Michelle Thompson, whom you may know, is asking, yes. were you at Paisley Grammar with Andrew Neil? Uh,
1: no, he had left a few years before I went there. I'm, oh. I'm much, much younger and, and much, no, I'm not actually that much younger. But but yes, I've never met Andrew Neil, I, I have to say. Um I'm not entirely sure if I want to be Andrew Neil either. I mean, he might be good to debate with sometimes, but uh, yes, no, he, he had—I uh, I knew um, I, uh, some teachers there who had taught him, and and they thought he was one of the most boring people they'd ever met. But he's got more interesting to so say. I think I think that yeah. can be said.
0: Yeah, well, he's, he's certainly got some interesting views. And I think he's chair of the chairman of the Spectator, if I remember right.
1: He is indeed, yeah. and, and various other um, I, I think right-wing think tanks and pressure groups, yeah. and, and so on.
0: Yeah. So, when you were at the BBC, were you always, or when did you become an independent supporter?
1: It's always been... I'm absolutely the worst kind of independent supporter. I'm not the one who made the, the, the last-minute conversion on the road to Damascus here. It's always been in me somewhere. Obviously, we all go off on detours, you know. I was yeah. a teenage Marxist, that, that that sort of thing. But really, I've always thought that if, if other small countries, and we are relatively small, if New Zealand and Denmark can do it, then why can't we? and And that's just... Refined itself and, and and added, I hope, a bit of intellectual weight to it, rather than just being a, a gut feeling that that, that yeah. we should be an independent country. It was also a, a case of it was obvious that, that we are we are being unfairly treated within the United Kingdom, and and that that kind of feeds into a, a bigger idea. You were, you were talking about the UNICEF there, that that terrible mm-hmm. UNICEF statistic. This is, I would like to live in a civilized country. The United Kingdom is not a civilized country because, in a civilized country, children do not go to bed hungry. I I think that's that's just a given, and I also think, and this is not just a, a, a gradual thing that's that's gradually, you know, sorry, sorry, not just a recent thing. It has dawned on me gradually. There is simply no way that we could do things worse than the United Kingdom does them. Yes. And I'm starting to make making a, wee, a wee list of stuff I won't miss after independence, like the, the <laughs> racist and vicious home office and, and yeah. the, the dreadful class system, which is so, I'm not saying Scotland doesn't have class system, but their class system, it's so, uh, it's so graduated. They even have, have classes within classes. Oh, are you lower middle class or middle middle class? That, that sort of thing. These are all things that I think we can do better.
0: Well, you know, that's an interesting point you make there. A lot of people watching and listening tonight will be thinking, how did you manage to exist in an institution which they would regard certainly as being institutionally biased? They say it is biased. Would you agree it's biased? The BBC in yeah. Scotland is biased.
1: The, the BBC, this is, I'm not trying to be diplomatic you know, here, the, the, the BBC has biases, of course it has. It's biased towards various things. It's biased towards, for example, a two-party political system, with two main parties, because that's what happens at Westminster. It's biased towards London. Of course it is. It's biased. These are not conscious biases. These are unquestioned assumptions. These are the unquestioned assumptions that inform everything that the BBC does. I mean, I was looking at an example earlier on. Uh, just check it out. Seven BBC television networks, all of which are headquartered in England. The BBC now has eleven UK national radio networks, eleven, including um, at the last count about five which dealt with various flavors of popular music. There are now three radio ones, for example, of the <laughs> different kinds. Um, that's which, which is which is fine, but yeah. uh, there are eleven of them. They're all headquartered. In England, how many more? And this is, I mean, I'm not, not saying I'm not talking tales out of school. Now, this is a question I've asked on air of BBC people, you know, BB, official BBC spokespeople. How many more networks would the BBC have to open, UK-wide networks, before one of them had a headquarters in Scotland, Wales, or Northern Ireland? It is the unquestioned assumption that that, that there is that British equals English, if, if, if you like, and that you have these other, uh, they used to call us regions, I can remember when they stopped calling us and called us nations and regions, and uh, until you are able to alter that mindset, then it will be forever thus, and I'm afraid it is going to be forever thus now.
0: It's hard to see how that can change. I mean, when you talk about nations and regions, it sounds like sophistry, if you haven't actually changed the structure. All you've done is done a bit of PR and say, because the word region raise a few hackles. What we'll do is we'll throw in the word nations. In order to mean that, you'd have to move the centre away from London. You'd, that, that would be the least you, you would have to do. Simply changing the title over the door, frankly, doesn't matter a whit, I would suggest.
1: Yeah, but organisationally, it, it there are two things. I've, I've, there's one thing I want to get across right away, which is you, you talked about, you know, how, how could I exist in there having the views I have. You've got to be in mind, by the time of the last independence referendum, the rank and file inside, or just ordinary folk who work in BBC Scotland, and the Pacific Key, and at all the other centres that the BBC uses to to serve Scotland as best it can, about 45% of them were in favour of independence, because that's the way the independence result came out. And that's now, I would say, the majority of them will be in favour of independence. Uh, there are lots of really good journalists in there. I, I'm, I never was a spokesperson for the BBC. They've got their own spokespeople for that. I'm, I'm a journalist who was hired by the BBC, like, like all the other journalists, and all the other really good programme makers in there. Some really good programmes might be made there. Uh, but when people focus on the news, there have been specific problems. And, and, the, and it has to be said that... that BBC has many faults, many faults, but most of those faults are south of Annan. One what, what of the common gripes in there, and I'm not betraying any confidences to, uh, confidence to say this, one of the common gripes inside Pacific Key and in other uh, BBC um, bases are up and down Scotland, are, are that um, they, they talk darkly about uh, network or London. And, and there is a feeling that simply London doesn't get Scotland to, to the same extent. And it, it, well, it doesn't because it's not in Scotland. That, that's one of one of the problems. There was a yeah. specific issue with the coverage of the last, in, the first independence referendum. And th- that is obvious. The BBC has acknowledged it. The BBC has said, goodness me, we took a big hit in public approval. But or, one of the mantras that the BBC always um, like, likes to bring out as well, if we're being attacked from both sides, then we must be getting it right well, in the independence referendum, I'm afraid they were only attacked principally from one side. So yeah. perhaps they, they weren't getting it right. Uh, the, the great James Cook, who still works at Pacific Key, has, has made a very good point and hasn't been signed for, for, for saying it. Um, good, good on him. And, and the, the, one of the major things that we got wrong was how the debate was framed, which was, let's examine, let's dissect, let's, let's hold up to the light, the cause for Scottish independence. What the BBC did not do was say let's have a look at the union and see how good it is and see if it's as good as it's cracked up to be. That yeah. that was a major miss. And what it, what it led to it was considerable dissatisfaction from people. A lot of it, I think, justified, some of it unjustified. And it led to things like the morning after the result. I, I was um, doing an outside broadcast from uh, just beside George Square in Glasgow. And in order to go into George Square in that, Fairly cold dawn the, the the following morning. I had to... the BBC hired two bulky ex-PARAs to escort me around the city where I live. Yeah, um, to be to be shouted at by you know shame on you BBC by by the people who pay my wages. And yeah. that that was that was a, a, an experience I was the, the, determined not to repeat.
0: Yeah, Susan campbell Creighton has picked up on that point, and she said. You know, hi, Ken. During the referendum in 2014, we knew the BBC was, she says, our enemy. Uh, we were definitely up against it. How do we counter this? And also, why do you think the BBC, which is supposed to be neutral and the public service, blatantly lies to people? You're a very brave man coming on tonight, so thank you.
1: I'm not, not sure if it's bravery. I think people will have to be open and transparent. Things like um, the Duke of Edinburgh at no point drove off in a white Fiat Uno and, and told, us th- told the assembled BBC journalists how to do things. I think people who think that the BBC is a giant conspiracy uh, against independence and against, uh, against the, the SNP really gives the BBC credit for organisational abilities that it simply doesn't possess. It, it, it couldn't organise something on that scale at that level. At a higher level... There are issues. Yes, there are. I mean, there are two reasons why the BBC can't win. The BBC cannot win in Scotland. Not, not not since, I would say, the 1970s, 1980s, since nationalism, since the SNP, since the independence idea started to take off. One of them is that the BBC is British, and the other one is the BBC is not British. And I, I, I hope you want me to explain that. But Please first do. of all, it, it's British because it says it is British. It is a British. Broadcasting Corporation. The problem is, we are, unless we're lucky enough to have another nationality or another dual nationality, you have to carry a UK passport. That's a political reality. The UK Parliament is, the UK Supreme Court is a political and legal reality. So is devolved Scotland. It has its own courts, it has its own systems as well. That is a reality as well. Britain yeah. is neither of these things. Britain is a cultural construct. Britain is is if you want to to be British, you can be British, that's fine. But it is not uh, an identity that most Mm. Scots share. At the last census, they ask people, the the identity scientists, if if you like, say, OK, how do you consider yourself? Are you completely Scottish or completely British? Mm or maybe half and half or maybe a wee bit more the other way or or one way or the other. What we found at the last census, before people have been asked about things like like independence, was that 62% of the Scottish population said, we are Scottish and not British at all. Yeah. That is their identity. Now, they went out and voted to stay in the United Kingdom because the two identities overlap, but they are not sure. the same. But you have an organisation, a massive cultural organisation, say, we're British. So that's, that's one problem that the BBC has, which I think is, is, is insurmountable. Um, the other is that it's not British, because the BBC is, is is a really good mirror of the way the United Kingdom works and that if if you look at the way in which i was talking about radio networks earlier on look at the fact that um, in not one year in, in the 90 plus years that the bbc has been in scotland has it ever spent the same amount of money or more that it raises in the licence fee in scotland has it spent that in scotland it just doesn't happen because the unquestioned assumption is it goes down the bo- it goes down the road across the yep. border to London, because you have to pay for important stuff like uh, Premier League football rights and Gary Lineker's salary and and all the overheads that come from so much of the BBC's infrastructure being based down south. The BBC, for example, has three divisions of of engineering, and they're all headquartered in England. You know, the BBC engineering doesn't have the same kind of presence that it has up here. It's at every level. I can remember many, many years ago, uh, when I was pretty junior, covering one of the Edinburgh Commonwealth Games, the Robert Maxwell Games. And uh, that was an unpleasant memory, wasn't it? Uh, And and being told by somebody there, I I went to get access to some information. I was told by somebody in the BBC, oh, you're BBC Scotland, you're not BBC. And that kind of stuck with me. That's kind of formed my opinion. I don't want to... Give the impression i of born a grudge for for thirty years, but it just shows yeah. you that it's it's not a reason. These are feelings that the BBC could possibly address, but it's left it a bit late for that. And the other thing is the BBC accurately mirrors the way the United Kingdom works, and the way the United Kingdom works is that it is eighty four percent of the population is English. Eighty four percent of the population—that's that's a tremendous chunk. It's very easy to go from eighty four percent of them are English to all of them are uh, yeah. and it is the engrandisment of of all these um, of, of all these resources to, to England which has led to this situation where people feel shortchanged not just by, by the BBC but by the United Kingdom. and that's because they are.
0: yeah well it's it's interesting. I mean a lot of people would agree with what you said, but they would ask, also ask themselves, okay, We see that, Ken sees that, presumably the 60% of people inside the BBC who, as you say, might be independent supporters, see it too. How come the BBC doesn't address that? Why doesn't it say... People are concerned about, I think, is the lack of action, i.e. they look at headlines that said that the head of the BBC in Scotland, who I think is just about to retire and be replaced, she made a commitment to restore trust in the BBC. I would have thought that she had utterly failed in that objective. If that's the case, what measures have been taken to try and restore trust, really?
1: I'm, I'm not passing the buck here. Honestly, I'm not. But I do, I'm not a BBC spokesman. I, am I not, understand. Uh, I'm not, not going to try and defend the BBC when they actually pay people to defend the BBC. And it, as I said earlier on, it does do a tremendous job in many areas. News has been one particular problem. One of the problems of the BBC is because it is so London-centric, it is so Westminster-centric, that you, you end up in, in, in a situation where it's run by people who just don't get Scotland. They don't understand what's going on up here. That's why there was such a kerfuffle in the New Broadcasting House when that one opinion poll came out, just before the independence referendum that put independence one point ahead. And it was like somebody, an intruder, had tripped over a tripwire because they could not and still cannot get the idea of why Scots might want to be independent and why now a majority of Scots might, might want to be independent.
0: Just yeah. let me stop you there just for a second, Ken. You say that, but I, I recall when I lived in the South, I lived in Berkshire for about 20 odd years. And on one of those occasions, I was invited by the BBC to come on a, a panel uh, to talk about broadcasting. And I said at that time, this is many years ago, more years than I care to remember, I said, the BBC's got a real problem in Scotland. I said, because the coverage is, is very poor, particularly outside Scotland, off Scotland. And that, that was my particular gripe because I happened to be located outside Scotland and it looked to me to be just appallingly bad. But even inside Scotland, it wasn't a great deal better, frankly, because of the institutional nature that you just described. And uh, they said, that's fantastic, very helpful. And it was one of those sort of person-to-person interviews, you know, the sort of thing. We're going to feed this back to the BBC. I'm sure they're going to find this very helpful. And I thought, well, nothing happened. 20 years went past, nothing happened. Zip, zero. So it's not as if the data isn't there, I suspect. It's the fact that there doesn't seem to be a commitment to act upon it. Yes,
1: because the BBC is British. It's run from London. It's run from London. By people who see London as being the top of the tree, and, and it's not just in in, in, in the BBC, and all sorts of media, even The, the Guardian, for example, yeah. Oh, yeah. cannot understand yeah. why people, after they have been to school and then gone up to Oxbridge, <laughs> which presumably they went up to somewhere yeah. like Cambridge because they weren't doing geography, because it's not really possible, it's like a billiard table down there, yeah. but they, they, you go up to Oxbridge and then you get a job in London. And yeah. that's it. And they cannot grasp that people might want to do something differently to that. It, it, is, it is a failure. And the other thing, of course, it goes back to the numbers game. I yeah. did. I mean, I'm not, I'm not. One of the things I, I got, I, I didn't resign from the BBC, I, I retired. So you get me letters saying, thanks very much. Um, oh, plus, don't forget to maintain all the. the don't blab things that you <laughs> learned, confidential things. Frankly, I didn't really learn anything interesting. Uh, but one, one of the things that, that I did is I spent a year on what they call attachment, which is a very civil service thing, uh, with uh, the policy and planning unit, as it was in those days. It's now the policy yeah. and planning directorate, or otherwise known as the STASI. And, and you were involved in all sorts of policy work down there. And One of the things I had to do was draft letters for the signature for the, of the chairman of, of the director general. And of course, I got all the complaints from Scotland. Well, not all of them, because most of the complaints just go to another unit that gives yeah. you a kind of form letter. Um, but you, you learn how to write these things. And you get these complaints saying, why didn't you pay more attention to this in Scotland and why? And by, by the end of a year in London, I hadn't quite gone native. But I was I, I was thinking, goodness me, it's because you're less than 9% of the UK population. Yeah. If you want to be 100% of the population... Get independence. Yeah, that's when
0: you count. I just want to make sure I've got the kernel of what you're saying. Uh, I've understood it well. My sense of it is that you're saying the BBC is not reformable.
1: I don't. I don't think it is. I, I, well, it, maybe maybe it is if it had time, but yeah. it's already had ninety plus years, and I'm not sure how much more time it has. When I, I saw Jerry Hassan on, on, on this very program just a couple of weeks ago, saying yeah. well. There should be public broadcasting, public service broadcasting in Scotland after independence. I don't think that's going to be particularly long. I can't tell tell you when. And I can't see the BBC being part of the the media landscape after that. So it probably... I don't think there's a degree of fatalism or, or anything like that, but I don't know whether it is worth the BBC's while trying to reform anymore. Now, that is that is with the greatest respect to all the people who work in Pacific Key and, and beyond in Scotland who work really hard and do, as I keep banging on about, turn out some great programmes and try to do their job really professionally. Sure. I mean, I, and the other thing is, you mentioned Donaldo McKinnon, it was, who's, who's just stepped down as director of BBC Scotland. A guy whom I've never met um, called Steve Carson has taken over. And you might see some glints of hope there, because he used to work for BBC Northern Ireland and RTE in Dublin. So he has seen what it's like to be ignored, he's seen what it's like to be overshadowed by by a a large um, next door neighbour.
0: I'm glad you just raised that. Steve, if you're watching tonight, please feel free to give us a call. Come on the programme. And you can tell us all about BBC Scotland and your plans to change it. If you have plans to change it, that is. There's the invitation. Sorry to interrupt, Ken. It was just a golden opportunity there because you reminded me of the guy's name.
1: Yes, I I think he's he's a really interesting guy. I know several people who did meet him before COVID hit and and were very impressed and thought, this guy gets it and that, that could be good. But of course... He then has to argue with London and yes. and London have other priorities, other priorities being the 84%. The other thing is that it's worth pointing out that whether or not there would exist a, a, a giant conspiracy within the BBC to clamp down on the moves for independence, to do down the SNP, uh, that, uh, that sort of thing, if, if there was... It's not worked very well, has it? it was. This is the most successful political party in Scotland for 50 years. Independence has now been ahead of what, 16 opinion polls in a row? Yeah. If, if there was somebody in charge of a giant conspiracy to stop the Onward March of
0: Freedom, then they'd get the sack. Well, mind you, there's a counter-argument that says the majority in favour of independence would probably be 100%, were it not for the BBC. <laughs> No, seriously. I mean, it does sound to me like like most institutions, they become ossified over time. It just happens to every, every grouping. They talk primarily to themselves. They convince themselves that, by and large, everything is pretty much okay, consistent with the resources available to handle their objectives. And everyone goes back and has a nice dinner and, and forgets all about the problems. Uh, which is why I raised the point about whether the BBC is, in fact, reformable. It also begs a bigger question. A lot of people watching tonight, listening tonight, will be saying to themselves, well, I consistently complain to Pacific Key about this, that, and the other, and nothing happens. They never speak to us. We get these formula letters from some place, some organisation somewhere. Uh, And if occasionally we decide, no, we're going to talk to the organ grinder, and we write to somebody in the South, then bingo comes back the same sort of letter, the ones that you used to write. And, and they all say much the same thing, uh, which is that we're doing our best. Your view is only one out of many. It's not hugely representative. Uh, but thanks for letting us know uh, your sincerely, and back it comes. The, the impression that generates is not just of a monolith, but an unfeeling, uncaring. Monolith that is not responsive to the very audience that it claims to serve. I think that's the biggest gripe that I hear. Not so much, and of course, there are complaints about independence and bias and all the rest of it, and you could devote a pro, couple of programs on that perhaps, but it's the sense of being insensitive, the appearance of being insensitive. Would you agree with that?
1: I think any big organisation behaves like that. But I think the BBC is guilty of that, yes. Um, I have taken part in various exercises where we went out and organised groups of people to come and talk. Public meetings and said people, come along. One of the things is, of course, most people don't. uh, The vast majority of people want to stay home and and watch the telly. Um, That's one of the problems. But it, it is, as I say, an exercise. It doesn't happen very often. It usually happens when the charter is coming up for renewal every so often, or they want to know something specific. One of the things is that the BBC, even when it knows something is wrong, can take quite a while to sort itself out. I mean, one example is, and this is still going on, that I was asked the other day by somebody, what tier are we in now with, with, with the COVID? And of course, we're not in any tier at all. We don't have tiers in Scotland, but they get this huge wash of information coming over the border. People yeah. think that, that that is the case. Yeah. People yeah. people think that Matt Hancock is their health secretary. Yeah. That, that sort of thing. That is just because it is all of the Scottish news and current affairs broadcasters can broadcast as much as they like, but they are being overshadowed by what's going on down south, And that's, yeah. that's true, I mean, I'm sure that's the case even now, after goodness knows how many years independence in Ireland, where RTE still exists in a media landscape that includes BBC One and BBC Two, for, for sure. example. Um, so th- there are all, all of these limitations. Now, every sort of the BBC does finally get the message or somebody at the bbc gets the message and one of the things that they did because of this phenomenon of the assumption that when you talk about the education secretary you're talking about schools across the uk that sort of thing um, yep. and indeed when you talk about the north um, mm-hmm. you're actually talking about manchester you know, which which is uh, i mean yep. they, they, they did this yep. as a big service then they 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 moved the headquarters of uh, radio 5 live from london to Salford, goodness we up are. there among the Eskimos. It was just, it, it, goodness me, to the north, which at Salford it turns out is actually slightly closer to London than it is to Edinburgh. But that's, they, they do occasionally get, get the message, and the edict went out that actually, when you've got a story that applies only to England, or only to that strange welded country, England and Wales, then you must say so or try and remember to say so at least. And you do get that now, which means if you listen to one of the, or watch one of the UK networks and watch the news, you get a whole load of um, news stories which are badged as this doesn't apply to viewers in Scotland. This is yeah. this is the thing, you, you get things by and large, there is the attitude that, well, the Scots have their own programme.
0: Yeah. Do you think any of these, any of that, what you've just described so eloquently, would have happened had broadcasting been devolved.
1: I think there would have been a much better settlement if that had been the case. And you have to ask yourself why the Labour government of the time, um, and indeed why Conservative governments subsequently, and the coalition government, didn't do anything about it, which was that, why didn't they devolve broadcasting? Why did they want broadcasting to remain centrally controlled? Public broadcasting is, is hugely important. I. I, I I'm a huge believer in I believe in publicly funded public broadcasting for Scotland. Uh, At the moment, in in those terms, there is only one show in town, and that that is the BBC, and it runs everything. Now, there are massive economies of scale in doing that, and and it does promote a culture of excellence in many areas. But it also, to, to a great extent, fails to get the nuances of what it's like to live in various parts of the United Kingdom. And it fails to get what's going on here. And that would have been addressed if broadcasting had been devolved. Now, people will say, oh, well, will that not... I mean, people have said this to me, well, that would mean that the BBC in Scotland was in the pocket of Nicola Sturgeon, you know, in the same way that the BBC down south is in the pocket of Boris Johnson or Tony Blair or Gordon Brown, whoever's the Prime Minister at the time. Well... Not really, if, if you organise it properly and if, if you manage to keep it to town's length. I'm not saying the BBC hasn't bent like the willow and, and may bend even further, given that uh, the current director general is a former Conservative Party candidate. Mm-hmm. But, and the BBC senses which way the wind is blowing, but it senses which way the wind is blowing in Westminster. Yeah. Because ultimately, the purpose of the BBC is not broadcasting. Yeah. The purpose of the BBC is to continue to exist. To get the charter and the license settlement, to get the license fee set, that is not set in Cardiff Bay or Stormont or Holyrood. It's set at Westminster.
0: Let me me test you on this one now, because what you're saying sounds awfully like this. I formulated Drummond's Law of Broadcasting in Scotland. Have you heard of Drummond's Law? Oh, yes. You have? How accurate do you think it is? I want to remind viewers and listeners, yes, Thomas Thomas Raw states that even if the majority of people in Scotland deplored its output, BBC Scotland could continue unaffected because there is no demo- local democratic oversight of its behaviour and conduct.
1: I think that's, that is legitimate. I think that, that, is, that is true. And I think that, um, that there has to be, actually, this is really a, a limit to which democratic oversight is stopped from being democratic control, which actually is not democratic, it's political control, because exactly. the politicians are in day-to-day charge, not the people. Uh, that's that's one of the downsides of democracy. It's also one of the downsides of, of the way broadcasting is run. Yeah. Um, better oversight would be great, because what happens is that, at, at the moment, um, somebody senior in BBC Scotland, and somebody senior, sometimes the director general, he couldn't make it this year, goes to Holyrood, um, or comes on Zoom and is grilled lightly for, for an hour by some MSPs. And yeah. then that's pretty much it for, for yeah. another year. And yeah. that's, that's not good enough. And, and it also raises the question, why shouldn't there be more than one public service broadcaster in, in the United Kingdom? Yeah. I know some people will say that Channel 4 is, and, but Channel 4 takes adverts. And the moment you take adverts, it changes the very balance yeah, of really what true. you do. Because okay. you're chasing then, you're chasing eyeballs. Yeah. Um, you're, somebody described it as renting eyeballs. You get eyeballs. In fact, there's, there's a saying in public broadcasting in uh, the United States where the public broadcasters say, we get money to make programs. They make programs to get money. Yeah. And that's that's the fundamental difference. And the moment yeah. you start having to sell adverts, you start having to move your schedules around. You start having to commission programmes which may not be in the public interest, but will be will interest the public enough yeah. so that they will watch it. To to to. And that's why you get Channel Four, which started out with with such, such tremendous public service broadcasting, now does eight out of ten cats.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I I take all of that. I mean, it does seem to me that unless you have democratic oversight, and these words were chosen carefully, rather than political oversight, because mm-hmm. uh, it is it, possible to contrive, because the BBC did it for a long time quite effectively. They had a, a governance arrangement that, that wasn't at the, the bidding of the, the party in power necessarily. But in Scotland, that's just not the case. I mean, the, the, you know, there isn't the democratic oversight. And it's a, it's a deficit, because it's difficult to see how you can properly I maintain that you're serving the community if the community has no involvement in what you do directly. Just, yes. To me, it doesn't compute. Yes. So does that mean, then, do you think, that all the people who write about Pacific Key and wanting improvements here and changes there and write to the Director General, we'd be better off applying all their energies to helping to bring about some sort of democratic oversight in Scotland?
1: I think so, yes. I think there is actually less democratic oversight than there once was. OK, we have the Parliament, which which takes a view but has no power over it. You used to have what was called the Broadcasting Council for Scotland, yeah. Uh, and we don't anymore. It's a, there is still a body which does roughly the same thing but has less power and less influence. Uh, that was a, a, a quite deliberate downgrading, I, I think. It was certainly, if not deliberate, was an unfortunate mistake. That is, that is one of, of, of the problems. I think that what people have to do is continue to press for democratic oversight. You have to continue to press the BBC because the BBC actually does respond Particularly to letters, actually angry phone calls, uh, not, not, not so much um, tweets, mm. possibly not at all. Um, it's, it's hard to tell, but certainly it still worries about what people write to them, uh, which is which is fascinating in this modern mm. electronic day and age. The other thing people have to think furiously about, because we 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 don't know how or when independence is going to happen, but. Uh, That's actually not the most important question. The question is whether we're ready. And one of the things we have to think about is what kind of public broadcasting do you want in in an independent Scotland? Because there is a far greater degree of market failure in in Scotland in terms of of the commercial sector and broadcasting. Mm -hmm. Uh, How are you going to make sure that given that a public broadcaster is going to have a much more important role in reaching all the parts of the country, not only the the bits that are most profitable. What do you want your public broadcaster to do? I was mentioning earlier on, for example, the BBC's 11 UK network radio stations about five carrying various types of pop music. Would it not be a public service if one of them carried, I don't know, traditional music or uh, jazz, for example? Uh, NRK in Norway, serving a population roughly the size of ours, actually has a 24-hour jazz channel yeah. and a 24-hour Norwegian folk music channel. It's great. Yeah. Um, I've yeah. I, I, I discovered some really interesting stuff there. Yeah. That is something that a proper public broadcaster would do. One of the problems has happened, and, and it's because that ratings are so important because it's not public approval or rather, public approval is taken to be the ratings the BBC gets, the reach that, that, that it gets which is important, oh. how many people it reaches because people have no choice as to whether they can pay for this or not well, they can, but the, 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 the lads will come around and knock on your door you have to be much more responsive and and so something that the BBC has, has not done much more responsive to what people think, to what people want. And you you will need to, to work out what sorts of things you want to see and hear on the television, the radio and online. Which is which is the, the third leg of the stool these days, and also how you are going to make sure that the organisation that provides that, how are you going to make sure it's paid for properly without parting people's pockets too badly, and also how are you going to make sure it actually listens to you rather than you just listening to them?
0: Yeah, I think that is. A, I think these are all very good points. I mean, my, my biggest worry is this because I'm, I'm sympathetic to some of the concerns that I see, which is why I developed Drummond's Law. And that was an attempt, a somewhat rather pathetic attempt, to try and reach out to the BBC. It, it wasn't meant maliciously. It was meant constructively to say, look, guys, this is not right. This is not appropriate. This is not fitting. You should not be at arm's length from the people you purportedly serve. You need to go out there, talk to people, ask them if you are meeting their requirements. That's a minimum. I mean, I've been a businessman all my life. And as soon as you lose contact with your customers, I'm sorry, you don't have much of a business left. And if your business continues simply through some sort of poll tax, then nobody is served by that, it seems to me. In fact, quite the reverse. It ceases to be a public service. It then becomes a public disservice, which I think is very sad because it seems to me, and I agree with you completely, Ken, an independent Scotland, Even the the present status of Scotland needs, desperately needs a public sector service broadcaster, somebody who provides a public service, you know, 24 7. You know, why not? It's as cheap as chips, really, nowadays with the technology. I mean, look at us tonight. I mean, it's not costing us a penny to do this. Come on, guys. It can't be difficult to do it. So, therefore, why don't you do it? And when people see it not happening, they assume the worst.
1: It has to be. And any properly functioning public service broadcaster is going to annoy people. That's one of, one of the things. It's, it's One of the things that annoys people at the moment when they watch the BBC is, OK, they think Scotland's being hard done by. That's possibly true. There are unquestioned biases, unquestioned assumptions. That's true as well. There are also people there that you simply don't agree with and opinions that you don't agree with I mean I I I frequently criticise I frequently say oh question time who are Nigel Farage's guests tonight because he seems to be on all the time. Now, there's a reason for that because when, when the, the Brexit party before that UKIP was was featuring in the opinion polls, there simply wasn't anybody with a roof to their mouth apart from him in the whole party yeah. and they deliberately kept them off the air. That's, that's one problem. One of the other things is that this these attempts to democratise the media, the technology provides you with the opportunity to do that but there has to be an area where you're going to hear both sides, where you're going to hear... Um, Both sides of the argument coming together, because it's all very well people having radio channels, television channels, podcasts, and so on, that are going to espouse one point of view. The yeah. people whom you are trying to persuade to vote yes are not going to be paying any attention to you. It's yeah. great for organising. It's great for enthusiasm, enthusing people. It's great for and this is not in, in terms of a, it's not meant to be a, a disparaging remark. But it is preaching to the choir. Of course it yeah. is, and people need areas in the independence movement where you can do that. But you also need areas where you've got to reach out to, to the people who haven't been converted yet, if you want to make sure that that 50-plus yes vote stays that way and, in yeah. fact, goes up beyond 60, uh, which would be absolutely unarguable, then yeah. you do need these areas. And as soon as you have that, then you're going to hear people on your public airwaves who are going to really hack you off. They, they really are. Yeah. The, the very fact... It's like every time I hear... The the so called president of the United States on the man who wasn't democratically elected, he he you uh, think but everything he says is a lie. But nevertheless, he's still the president of the United States, and yeah. and people generally speaking are not daft. I think pe- people can can tell the, um, uh, the sugar from the shiny or whatever it is. They, <laughs> they 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 are not fooled, and yeah. I think that if you have this open, I hate to sound. I don't hate to sound like Jerry Hassan, a marketplace of ideas. Um, yeah. the, the, you have to have this, this place where we're going to have an exchange and where persuasion can take place and proper yeah. argument, not Barnays, not put downs on Twitter, the real deal. Absolutely.
0: Every independent country needs a broad spectrum of people because once you've established your sovereign state, you're going to need all the talented folk you can find. And I'm absolutely confident, as somebody has said tonight, Ray Grofter, there must be loads of talented people in Pacific Key. You know, massive talented people. And we're going to need these people once we've, we're looking at public uh, service broadcasting. No question about that. Oh, by the way, Ruth Watson says, hello again, Ken. I knew you back in the days of Queen Margaret Drive. I remember Ruth well. Yes, Yeah, your fan club Listen. continues to grow. <laughs> uh, it could, could this but seriously, enough? almost all the questions tonight have been about the lack of sensitivity, the lack of responsiveness, and I think we've we've attempted to address some of these things. Your point about having a some sort of public service uh, uh, consultative committee, you know, I have no idea why that was done away with, because it seems to me at least it would have been it would have been at least a gesture towards. Uh, being responsive but I do feel the BBC really has to have a major shake-up and start to seriously think about communicating with its audience outside of just here's the news here's this but a very broad uh, approach uh, to to being seen to be responsive because I think you you don't exist otherwise unless you do that just like any business doesn't frankly but almost out of time Ken is there anything you'd like to say just before we go?
1: Just to reiterate that that. Yes, I, I, I agree with that point that's just been made. That there are lots of talented people there whose skills will transfer to, to a new public broadcaster. Some people will choose not to transfer across. I, I would be sure when, if and when that happens, and also that we have to start thinking now about what we want to hear when we turn on the radio yeah. or, or the telly or go online after independence.
0: Well, there you are, folks. That's our challenge. Ken, I think, has eloquently uh, described the process, the environment. Uh, all of that good stuff. Very helpful, Ken. Thank you very much. We've almost run out of time. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Maybe if we get a chance to come back and talk some more, because I think we've probably only scratched the surface here. And a big thank you to all of you for watching tonight. Uh, Again, we've got a whole bunch of guests lined up in the future. I think you'll find interesting. But next week, Herald's Christmas and the New Year. So we're going to take a small break, but the TNT show will continue. We'll be showing, giving you another chance to listen to Eddie Reeder and Brian Cox, uh, the Hollywood actor whom we interviewed way back, way back when. And next year, we've got some more exciting guests coming up. Professor Murray Pittock will be with us and also child expert, uh, Sue Palmer, to name only a few. Oh, by the way, look out for the Constitution column in the Sunday National uh, this week. I'll be talking about uh, UNICEF uh, again, because I think it's important. Support the Live. Go to whatsonguide.scot and remember, they are here for you. The Nation Talks is here for you. India Live is here for you. Please give them your support. And thanks again for joining us tonight. Have a very good night. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Good night all.